Andrew's mother was very burdened that her son be called to be a missionary, and so she took him to Andrew, uh, or took him to Stanley to be prayed for. In his teenage years, Andrew surrendered to that call to missionary service, and he eventually attended Wheaton College for his preparation. In 1993, he and his wife accepted an assignment to the country of Turkey, which at the time was the largest unevangelized nation in the world. There were about, there were about 6,000 Christians in a population of about 80 million people. There they would work for the next 23 years planting churches, ministering to refugees, and evangelizing Muslims. The work in Turkey would be monumental. It would be an even dangerous task. But they were compelled by the call of God to take the gospel into, a, into the heart of darkness. On October 7, 2016, Andrew was unexpectedly arrested by the Turkish government, falsely accused of membership in an armed terrorist organization and espionage for the U.S. government. In addition, the Turkish government fabricated evidence against Andrew and denied him due process according to their own laws. After two long years of harassment and mistreatment, Andrew was finally released and returned home to the United States. And you may have seen, I think his biography just came out, his, his, the book of his experience just came out recently uh, telling that story. My question is, where was God for Andrew in those two years? How could God allow such misfortune to happen to someone who, whom he had called, to someone who had obediently responded to that call, to someone who was faithfully serving God, doing God's work in a place of great need. How could so much go wrong for a man who sought to live right before God? It doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem fair. Maybe you can relate on a, on a much smaller, more insignificant scale. Maybe your life doesn't seem to be going right. Maybe life doesn't seem fair to you. If you're a Christian, you have responded to the call of the gospel in your life. You've responded in faith to Christ. You're one of God's own and you love Him and you seek to honor Him. And yet, maybe your life feels like it's simply one wrong turn after another. That there's injustice upon injustice heaping down upon your head. Or maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come this morning because someone has invited you. Maybe you just wandered in because you're looking for truth. You're not a Christian this morning and and you're trying to be a good person. You're trying to live right. You're trying to live a, a good moral life. You're trying to be nice to people. You're trying to make a positive difference in the world. And yet it seems that your life is completely out of control. There's just simply one bad thing after another happening to you. What, what do you do? Where do you go? Where do you turn? I think if we would agree that our lives have not turned out exactly as we have hoped or wanted, that our lives may not have been according to the right plan that we established for ourselves or that we saw God establishing for us, we can relate to what David says in Psalm 4. I think it's an appropriate place to start. So let me ask you to grab your ESV version. If you're not using an ESV, but I'm asking you to grab that Bible that I've asked you to open to. If you could go ahead and stand with me now. We're going to read together as we've done with the other Psalms. Psalm 4 out loud from the ESV version. We're starting with verse 1 and read the whole Psalm, eight verses. 
Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than when they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thank you so much. You may be seated. As we have in most of these psalms, I want to make two observations from this psalm, from Psalm 4. And the first one I think is quite obvious. That is, the Lord is our righteousness. David, who is the author, according to the editorial note that you see, appears before verse 1, appeals to God as the God of my righteousness in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, what does David mean by that phrase, God of my righteousness? Well, I think before we can really get to that, we need to ask ourselves the question, what does the word righteousness mean? How do we define it? And then we need to understand that righteousness, how it relates or how it applies to God. So what does the word righteousness mean? Well, the word points us to right action or right conduct. The word originally meant to be straight as opposed to, to being crooked or to going in a, in a veering direction. And it referred to living a morally or, or, or religiously right life in a, in a moral or religious sense. We're talking about someone who, who wants to live or who just, who strives to live a straight life or an upright life, a moral life. Someone who lives life the right way. Someone who does right. So we might say that obeying the speed limit, for instance, or paying our taxes, or helping the poor, are all righteous actions. When we do these things, we are doing right. We are acting in righteousness. Well, how does righteousness apply to God? Well, the word righteous really only appropriately belongs to God. The Scriptures are clear that human beings are not righteous. Though we might do right things sometimes, we are not internally righteous. Only God is truly and perfectly righteous. And when we use that word righteous, we really need to understand it in terms of God than in terms of any human being. When we say that God is righteous, we mean that God literally does right. He acts rightly. We mean that God is righteous in all that He is and all that He does. In fact, righteousness is one of the attributes of God. Just as we say that God is holy, that God is compassionate, that God is omnipotent, He's all-powerful, He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, God is righteous. He is thoroughly and perfectly righteous. And because God is righteous, He acts rightly. He does right all the time. Everything that God does is right. God never does anything wrong. He acts rightly. He does right all the time because He is righteous at the very core of who He is. Now, God is not righteous because He, he meets some sort of eternal cosmic standard of righteousness. 
God is righteous and he sets that standard. He is the one, because he is righteous, sets the standard of right and wrong. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity, this is one of the convincing proofs that we are created beings, that God is a righteous God, that we haven't evolved. Because we have this sense of, of an internal sense of right and wrong. We have some standard by which we know things are right and things are wrong. How do we know that there is right and there is wrong, even as separate categories? We know that because a righteous God has implemented it into our life. He has placed it within us because he himself is righteous. So when David prays, he appeals to God here as the God of his righteousness. And, and that's an interesting way of appealing to God. Why would he appeal to God as, as the God of my righteousness when he could have appealed to any number of other attributes of God? He could have prayed to the God of my holiness or the God who, who loves you, the, the all-powerful God, the all-wise God. Why did he choose righteousness here in this instance? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One, because David has suffered some kind of unrighteousness. Some wrong has been done to him. He is a victim of injustice. Wrong things have been done to him. Someone has not done right by him. In fact, we don't really know who is doing the wrong here or what that wrong is. We see in verse 2 that he addresses uh, men, O oh men, and the, the phrase literally in Hebrew there is, 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 is the B'nai Ish, the sons of men, which in the Hebrew language is kind of a technical way of referring to people who are very powerful or very influential these may be a way of referring to, to elite, the, the wealthy elite, the very powerful in society, political rulers who misuse their power towards others for their own benefit. Uh, he's nondescript. He just says that the, there are certain people, certain men who are, who are doing some kind of unrighteousness to him. And we don't even know what that unrighteousness is. In verse 2, he kind of references the justice kind of in a vague way. He says, uh, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek, that, seek after lies? He's simply here saying that, that there are people who are somehow besmirching his reputation. They've turned my honor. They've turned my, my glory into shame. They've besmirched my reputation. They are, they are perpetuating uh, lies. They're seeking after lies. They are loving vain words, which may be a way of referring to idolatry. It's kind of a, a way when you cross-reference this in, this in the Old Testament. It usually is a way of referring to idolatry. So perhaps there's some influence of idolatry that, and the, the repercussions of that have been coming upon David. Regardless of what the specific details may be, we can hear the distress in David's voice, right? Especially in those first few verses. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and, and hear my prayer, he says in verse 1. Verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You can hear the, the desperation there. You can hear the urgency and the imperative that he uses. In verse 1, answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayers. He's strongly imploring God to acknowledge his situation, act on his behalf. You can also hear his distress in the questions that he poses to his persecutors in verse 2. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He says it twice, right? He uses that phrase, how long, twice. In the Old Testament, the question, how long, is a sign of distress. Usually it's directed to God, but here David is directing it toward his persecutors. In Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, he says, How long, O Lord? Doesn't even 
finish the question there. How long, the sense of desperation, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So David here is lamenting. He is lamenting the injustice that has been done to him. He is questioning his persecutors as to how long they will oppress him and act wrongly toward him. The wrongs that David's enemies perpetuate against him, the the shame that he unjustly feels by what they have done, the vanity and the falsehood that they pursue at his expense cause him to grieve and to lament. The right that David expects of his life, the right that he expects others to do to him, is anything but. Maybe you're feeling a little bit like David yourself. Maybe things are not going right in your world. Maybe you're suffering injustice at work, maybe from your employer or from a co-worker because of your faith in Christ. Maybe you're experiencing some kind of rejection from a family member or a neighbor or a friend. Maybe you're struggling with your health or your finances. Do you feel the weight of the wrongs that have been done to you in your life? Is your life going the wrong way? I would say, maybe as a word of encouragement, that this shouldn't be a surprise to us. That David's experience here is, is the human experience. There are things in our lives that are not right. We all suffer some kind of wrong or injustice. And so this psalm resonates with us because we know David's pain personally. And that's where I think this psalm is instructive for us. I think it's one of the reasons why we don't have much historical context to it. We can pray this prayer 3,000 years later because we've walked a road similar to David's road. And because of that, we can follow David's example. We must follow David's example. We must appeal to the God of my righteousness. David appeals to God as a righteous God because some injustice has been done, but he also appeals to God because God is righteous, right? We've already said that. Where should we turn when our lives go wrong? Well, we should turn to the God who is righteous, to the God who does right, to the God who acts rightly in all things. Again, we mentioned this earlier. God does right because He is righteous. He is righteous in nature. And we can turn to Him, the God of my righteousness, because we expect Him to act in righteousness in our lives. We expect that because He is righteous. God's righteous intervention in our lives is rooted in His righteous character. But David also has a very good basis for appealing to the righteousness of God because God has acted righteously in David's life in the past. God has done works of righteousness for David and for his people in times past. Did you notice that in verse 1? He begins, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Now again, we don't know what those past experiences were for David. But we do know that David felt pressed. When he faced another previous situation where he was facing injustice, he felt pressed. He felt hemmed in. He felt confined by the wrong that had been done to him. And so what did he do? He had called out to God for intervention. And God had graciously intervened. God had given him relief. In fact, the word there, translated as given relief, 
literally means to give room. David felt constricted by the wrongs done to him, but God gave him room. God opened things up. God gave him a place to a freedom. He freed him from the constrictions of his injustice. He released him to walk in the freedom of God's righteousness. So David appeals here to God's past actions. He's, he's coming to God in the moment of this injustice because God had done something like this for him in the past. This is what God does. We look back and we see the righteousness of God in times past and we know that we can go to Him, we can appeal to Him on the basis of His righteousness because He has acted righteously in the past. David also appeals to God's righteousness because God's righteousness is rooted in the covenant He made with His people. In verse 3, Though he is speaking to his persecutors, he says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. God has set apart Israel for a special relationship with himself. And he codified that relationship in the form of a covenant. God made a binding commitment to his people to be their God and to do right by them. As a member of the covenant community here, David can appeal to the righteousness of God because God promised to do right for his people in all that he does. In fact, I love how David personalizes the relationship with God here. And he says in verse 1, O God of my righteousness. I kind of saw this back in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. David is personalizing what is true for the nation of Israel to himself. God is the God of my righteousness. I am one of God's people. God has promised His righteousness to me. He is the God of my righteousness. So David not only expects God to do right by him, but he seeks it when others seem to confound it. Is this how we respond when we've experienced wrong in our own lives, when we suffer injustice, do we appeal to God to act with His righteousness? Or do we simply complain? Do we become hopeless and withdraw? Do we wallow in our despair and our depression? Do we seek to take matters into our own hands? Do we take revenge on others who have caused us trouble? We need to remember that God is righteous. He does all things rightly. And He will do all things rightly in our lives. So when we face wrong in our lives, we should, like David, appeal to God. We should direct our prayer to the righteous God, just as David did. So how does David want God to act in His righteousness? I think there are two categories of imperatives here in this psalm that that David is directing to God as to how he wants God to act righteously in his situation. First, he pleads with God to hear him. Hear my prayer, he says. Verse 1, answer me in my distress. In the rest of verse 1, hear my prayer. God, David wants God to hear his prayer. And the word hear in Hebrew means hear. He wants God to hear him. Now, of course, God already hears. We can trust that. God already knows about a situation before David even utters a word. But David's plea here for God to hear is really a request for God to act. In fact, the Old Testament word here means here. 
But usually implied with it is this, this sense of obedience, this idea of obedience. When God calls his people to hear, when he directs them to hear, he doesn't just expect them to just allow those auditory sensations to reverberate in their ears. He wants them to do something. He wants them to act upon what they hear. He wants them to obey. He's calling them to obey. So in this sense, David is pleading with God to act. He doesn't want God to be passive. He doesn't want God to just hear this passively. He wants him to respond actively. He says in verse 1, answer me. He wants God to act in in accordance with his righteousness. He wants God to right the wrongs that he is suffering in this situation. The second category of imperatives there is is the the, the category where David pleads with God to honor his promises. Fulfill your promises. Keep your promises to me. Again, those promises were rooted in God's covenant with his people. God's intentions in the covenant were to always bless his people. And we see that blessing most manifest, I think, in the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. It says there, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This was the priestly blessing when the people came to worship. They were to, the priests were to announce this blessing. We do a benediction at the end of our service to announce God's blessings upon you as you leave, to give you a good word upon which to leave this place. God's word for his people when they gathered for worship was that he would bless them, that he would be gracious to them, that he would shine his face upon them, that he would lift up his countenance upon them. He would shine his face upon them. He would be gracious toward them. He would give them peace. That was God's intention in the covenant, to bless his people. And David is appealing to that, saying, Lord, keep your promises, the promises that you have espoused in this very blessing. In fact, we see two touch points between this psalm and that blessing. First, we see in verse 1 where David says, appeals, prays, be gracious to me. Right? We saw that in number 625. Be gracious to me. David expects that God will be gracious to him because he's promised to be gracious to the people of Israel. Even more noticeable, in fact, this is the first thing that kind of stood out to me as I was reading the passage, comes in verse 6 where he says, at the second part of verse 6, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David is using the exact words that come from Numbers 6.26. Lift up, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That metaphor of, of lifting the countenance or lifting the face indicates there a sense of joy, making someone glad. When we are downcast, we look down, right? You're down, just kind of moping around, looking around. But when you are glad... Your face is lifted up. He's asking God to lift up their face, to make them glad, to bring them joy. So it seems like David here is praying for God to fulfill the covenant promise that he made for them in the Aaronic blessing. God can show his grace and he can do good for David by acting in his righteousness and making straight all of the wrongs that have been done to him. So David's prayer in Psalm 4 offers us a precedent to pray for the righteous activity of God in our lives. We should pray for God's righteousness when we've been wronged, when we are suffering injustice. God invites us to appeal to Him, to ask Him to hear us, 
to beg Him to respond in a righteous way in our lives. God is a God of righteousness. We should pray that His good and right will be done in our lives. And we can pray that God will be faithful to His covenant promises. We have the assurance that He will be because God is righteous. He, is, he does all things right. And if God made covenant promises, He will fulfill those covenant promises because He is righteous. So we pray to the God of our righteousness. We pray to the God who is righteous, who always does right, even in our lives. And so because God is righteous, when we appeal to our righteous God, we can be confident that God will act in our lives according to His righteousness. That's the second observation. We can be confident that God will act in our lives according to His righteousness. We can be confident of that. Again, we feel David's grief. We feel his restlessness here. We feel his frustration over the wrongs that he has suffered at the hands of his enemies. That lament is, is thick in the first couple of verses, and it just drips through the rest of the psalm. In fact, some scholars are, 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 are confused, not confused, they're, they debate whether this should be called a psalm of, of lament or a psalm of confidence. Because even though the lament is strong, there's also a strong note of confidence, right? Do you see David's confidence in God, especially in the latter part of the letter? Uh, for example, in verse 6, he says, he says there, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The many there are probably other Israelites like David who are suffering at the hands of perhaps these very people, these, these very men, the sons of men, the elite, the powerful men, the influential men. And they're asking, who will show us good? Who will show us any good or some good? In fact, the word some there or any in your English translations is not there in Hebrew. They literally are asking, who will show us good? Because they are suffering wrong, all good is gone. All they experience is wrong is bad. Who will show us good? Who will show us good at all? Who will show us good ever? They're questioning here the goodness of God, but not David. His confidence leads him to pray for the fulfillment of the Aaronic blessing, right? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. How can he pray that he is confident in God? He is confident in God's righteousness. David is confident that God will act in his righteousness because he trusts God. This prayer is rooted in a deep trust in God. If David didn't trust God, why make the prayer? If David has no confidence in God, why appeal to a God who can do nothing for you? But David trusts God. He trusts God to act according to who he is and according to what he has said. He trusts God to act on the basis of what He has done in the past. He trusts God to act because He made a commitment to His people. He trusts God to fulfill every promise He ever made to them. So though David prays lamentingly, he prays confidently. Why? Because he trusts God. And we can see the fruit or the effects of that confidence in this, the latter, the latter part, the latter few verses of this psalm. Look at some of the fruits or some of the, the effects of that confidence. In verse 8, David's confidence brings him peace. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. 
So David's confidence brings him peace. And though, though he laments, though he is agitated, though he suffers, he has peace because he has confidence in God's righteousness. Now, one of the surest signs that you have peace in your life is the ability to sleep. How many times have you struggled to fall asleep at night because of anxiety or worry about some event? How many of you have awakened in the middle of the night because of some fear or some worry? Or maybe awakened and couldn't fall back asleep? One of the surest signs that we have the peace of God is the ability to sleep. And David, though he is suffering greatly here, says confidently, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. He will rest. He will sleep a sound night's sleep because he trusts in the righteousness of God. He is confident that God will act in his situation with righteousness. Do you have that kind of confidence? Do you have that kind of peace when your life seems to be full of wrong? Do you lie awake at night with your mind racing because you are troubled by all of the wrong things in your life because of all of the injustices you are facing? Or can you rest confidently in God? And sleep soundly, trusting His righteousness. If you're struggling with all of the wrong things that are happening in your life, let me encourage you to trust in God's righteousness. Rest in the peace that comes with a confidence in Him. The second fruit we see in verse 7. God, David's confidence in God brings him joy. You have put more joy in my heart than when, they, than when their grain and wine abound. And again, you can see David's confidence there, I think. He writes that as an indicative statement. He doesn't write it as an imperative or as a request. He writes it as if it's the truth. He is writing reality. God has given David joy because God has intervened in David's life with his righteousness. And again, notice the genuineness of that joy. But it's not superficial. It's, it's real. It's internal. You have put joy in my heart, he says. You've put it in the very center of my being. You've put it right there where I wrestle with all these decisions, where I weigh all the things happening to me, where I, I'm, I'm deliberating over, over how to respond. You've put joy there in the midst of me. And that joy, because it is there, because it is in the innermost part of who he is, radiates out to every other aspect of his life. Notice also the intensity of that joy. David compares this joy to the joy of the harvest. That, that this kind of joy, the joy that God has put in his heart, surpasses the joy of the harvest, which in ancient times is the most joyful time of the year. If there's no, if there's no, no harvest, that's a bad year. If there's no food, there's going to be hunger, there's going to be turmoil, there's going to be death. So when the crops came in, it was a, an occasion for great rejoicing, celebration, music, festivals, dancing. And David says here, as great as the, the joy of the harvest is, as, as joyful as the, the new grain, the new wine that comes in from the fresh grape harvest, my joy is even more than that. Your goodness is even greater to me than the annual harvest. And David's confidence there then brings him joy. Do you have such confidence in God that you have joy in your life when everything seems to be going wrong. Can you celebrate in the midst of suffering? Again, let me encourage you to trust God. Celebrate in the confidence 
of God's righteousness. Third fruit we see here is the, the fruit of safety. David's confidence in God brings him safety. In verse 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, and for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again, it's another indicative statement. You alone make me dwell in safety. He's not making a prayer or making a request. He is stating reality here. God keeps him safe even in the midst of all of the wrongs he endures at the hands of others. And again, we don't know the kind of dangers that David faces here, but he trusts God to keep him safe in the midst of the, that danger. The word safety there is related to the Hebrew word for trust. So again, David's trust here is in God's righteousness, and that righteousness will keep him safe. Are you confident that God's righteousness will keep you safe? Again, maybe not physically safe because the New Testament doesn't promise physical safety. But we are eternally safe in Christ. Does your confidence in God's righteousness, does your confidence in your eternal safety shape your perspective? Does it shape the way that you live? David's confidence bore great fruit in his life. We can also see David's confidence in God's righteousness through the warning he gives to his enemies. I love verses 4 and 5 where David kind of pauses from praying to God and addresses those who are persecuting him. He says, be angry, do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David is warning his oppressors. They're wrong against him has put them in a wrong position before God. And so his warning to them calls them to repentance and faith. Verse 4, David is calling his opponents to repent. The word there that is translated, be angry, literally means to tremble or to be agitated. In other words, that trembling should come when they recognize what they have done before God. God is righteous, but they are unrighteous. God does right, they have done wrong. And because of that dynamic, they should tremble. They should fear God. Because by their injustice, they have placed themselves under the justice of God. God will act in righteousness toward them. And that will not be a very good day for them. Because when God acts in righteousness towards unrighteous people, He will deal with them in His wrath. And so David calls them in verse 4 to cease from their sins. Be angry, be agitated, tremble, fear God, and do not sin. When they lie down at night, they should not devise evil plans that they hope to hatch against others, but they should ponder and meditate on the morality of their actions and the consequences that it will bring to them. In verse 5, he calls them to trust Him. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Because they are presently on the wrong side of God's righteousness, David calls them to enter into the safety of God's righteousness. Remember that word, that tr the word trust and safety are the same words in Hebrew, related to the same root? David here is saying, look, you're on the wrong side of God's justice. You're on the wrong side of His righteousness. The only way to save yourselves from the righteousness of God is to find shelter in it. And how do you find shelter in it? By turning away from the sin you are doing and trusting in God. And he associates their trust with the right sacrifices. Notice in verse 5, he tells them, offer right sacrifices. The word right there is the same word for righteousness in verse 1. O God of my righteousness, 
David tells them, offer the right sacrifices. The sacrifices of righteousness. God had required certain sacrifices, right sacrifices, acceptable sacrifices for his people to offer to him. It is by these sacrifices that their sins can be atoned and they can be brought back into a right relationship with God. They can be made right with God. So by these sacrifices, God is dealing with their unrighteousness. God is able to, through the the sacrifice that's made, forgive the sins of these persecutors and bring them under the shelter of his safety. How does that happen? Well, in these sacrifices, God appoints an animal to die for the sinner, right? The sinner should die for his sins. The righteousness of God requires that we die. We suffer the penalty for our unrighteousness. But in the Old Testament system, God provided animals to die on behalf of the sinner, the unrighteous person. So God's justice, God's righteousness is still enacted because something dies. The penalty of God's wrath is, is taken care of because a, an innocent victim dies. And by the shedding of that blood, as Bruce referred to earlier, that sin is atoned for. That sin is wiped away and a person is now set free to walk rightly as God requires. So David here in verse 5 is pointing his enemies to the gospel. While in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to offer the sacrifices repeatedly, Hebrews 9, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, in Jesus, the sacrifice that reveals the righteousness of God was offered once for all. Jesus is that sacrifice that those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. Jesus is the greater sacrifice that atones for all of our sins. Because Jesus was that innocent victim. Jesus had no sins to speak of. No sins that he ever committed. And yet he died in our place. He died the death that God's righteousness required. He died for our sins. God punished Jesus instead of us. And so unrighteous people can be made righteous through that sacrifice. We no longer have to offer the right sacrifice. That right sacrifice has been offered for us. And we simply have to appeal to it. We have to trust put our trust in the Lord. That sacrifice got the job done. It took unrighteous people and made them right before God. And because we are right before God now, we can walk in God's righteousness. So if you're not a Christian this morning, this appeal that David makes to his oppressors is the appeal that we make to you. That God is always righteous. He will always be righteous. And He will exercise His righteousness to you either in Christ through His sacrifice, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him, or by His everlasting wrath, where He will mete out His his, his just punishment for your sins forever. So we call you, we plead with you to repent and trust in Christ. So our God is righteous. He is righteous. He always acts righteously even when we suffer wrong, even when we can't discernibly see how His righteousness is being worked out in our lives at the present time, we can trust that even the wrongs we suffer are instruments of God's righteousness. Those wrongs never diminish nor subvert God's righteousness. But because God is our righteousness, He is working all things together for our good. And we have that as a certain promise for us. Because we are in Christ. We are in the one who is 
our righteousness. So in the midst of all that we perceive to be wrong in our lives, may we rest in the confidence of God's righteousness, just as David did. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you this morning for your righteousness, that you are just, that you are right in all that you do, that you establish the standards of righteousness, and that you always act rightly in our world and in our lives. And Lord, though even though we don't perceive how that may be happening, we must trust you. We appeal to you, Lord, to be the right and holy God who brings about righteousness in our life. We thank you that you have done that most fully in Jesus Christ, that you sent him into this world to be the sacrifice of righteousness, so that you could deal rightly with our sin and then help us to walk in righteousness by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that all things will work together for good. Thank you that you are even sovereign over the injustices and the wrongs that are done in our lives. That you, in Christ, help keep our lives straight all the way to the very end. That we will know one day fully what we can only perceive in a small way here. That you are the God who does all things well. Who does all things right in our lives. We praise you for that and we thank you for that. We pray you continue to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would those who are coming to serve at the Lord's table this morning go ahead and come at this time? In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, Paul writes this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This table that we come to this morning celebrates an act of righteousness. That though we were unrighteous people, God sent His Son into the world to enact His righteousness in a gracious way. That though we deserve the punishment of death, though we deserve the wrath of God for our sins, Christ became the offering of righteousness. He did God's will. He did God's righteous act by atoning for sin and allowing us to be forgiven of that sin and brought into a new relationship with Christ. It is now because of his death and resurrection that we have the very righteousness of Christ and we can walk in that righteousness. But it came through one act of righteousness. It came through this sacrifice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that was before he and his disciples. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, broken for you. He then took the cup, said, This is the cup of my blood shed for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the blood that inaugurates a new covenant, a new way in which we relate to God. Because God has taken the righteous one and made us righteous in Him. 
And so as we come this morning to eat this bread and drink this blood, we come as righteous people celebrating the righteousness of God and walking in His righteousness.